I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. And really excited for our conversation this morning as we continue in our legacy series. And a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity, myself and a, and a handful of other uh, local pastors, to meet with Mayor Ginther and some other local officials. And we were talking about how we can uh, address some of the needs of our city. And the mayor highlighted that Columbus is prospering economically, we're growing. Uh, and two-thirds of the city uh, experience much of that prosperity. But a third of the city is left behind. And so we talked about how we can invest well uh, to care for and lift up those in the city who the prosperity is not necessarily lifting up. And in that, he mentioned something, and it really stuck with me. And the mayor talking about it, he said, and it's, you know, sometimes politicians, you don't get what motivates them. And he said something that really stuck with me. And he said, uh, he knows that he has inherited some problems and he will pass them on. You know, in other words, we're not going to have the silver bullet to fix everything. But he said, in his leg of the race, he wants to be faithful. And that stuck with me. And I, I like thinking of that. Like his leg of the race, he wants to have done the best job he could do. As I think of myself personally and us as a church, in our leg of the race, are we faithful to do our work? Recognizing that we have been entrusted with a story, entrusted with a legacy, and we will pass on a legacy, will we be found to have been faithful? And in thinking about that, I was reminded when I was first ordained at Chase Oaks Church in Plano, Texas, uh, our senior pastor, Jeff Jones, he had me and another uh, young pastor, and he got out a baton. And for him, it's a little meaningful because he actually wrote a book, uh, The Leadership and Baton. So this was all about him and his work. And he took the baton, and he handed it to me, and he said, you're up. You're up. As we think about what does it look like to pass the gospel on to the next generation. I think it requires us to think through what does it look like to be faithful in our leg of the race and how are we going to hand it off and empower and unleash the next generation to do the same. You know, Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, it is a collection of sermons from Moses to God's people at the end of Moses' life. Moses is at the end of his life. The people are about to inherit the promised land. And Moses wants to take the baton of faith and hand it to the next generation that the work of God would continue after he's gone. And so we pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to read our passage. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, we have here really the central idea of the whole book, of this collection of sermons from Moses. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, there, Moses is preaching to God's people and he wants to get to the heart of what he's entrusting to them. It says this in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, I came across a collection of responses uh, to questions about marriage and love from six to ten-year-olds. They were giving their insight on marriage and love, and I found it pretty uh, insightful and entertaining. I want to share a few, just a few of the questions with you, or a few of the responses. Uh, one question was, how do you decide who to marry? How to decide who to marry? That's a good question. Uh, Alan, age 10, he said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports. And she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> uh, Kirsten, uh, I like her response. Kirsten, age 10, she said, uh, to how, how you decide who to marry. No person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> um, here's a good one. How you can tell if someone is married. So it's like, how do you know when you, if someone's married? Uh, Derek, age eight, he said, you might have to gaze, or I'm sorry, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. It's very observant. Here's one. What would, what would you do on a first date? What would you do on a first date that was turning sour? Like you're on a date, it's not going so well. Uh, Craig said, I'd run home and play dead. Uh, here's a good one. When is it okay to kiss someone? Pam, age seven, she was pretty frank. She said, when they're rich. <laughs> Kurt, Kurt was a little cautious. Kurt said, the law says you have to be 18. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to mess with that, you know. <laughs> uh, Howard, age eight, uh, to that question, when is it okay to kiss someone? He said, the rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. Uh, just a few more. Is it better to be married or single? Anita, age eight, nine, said, It's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. Uh, Kirsten, again, she said, Single is better for the simple reason that I wouldn't want to change no diapers. Of course, if I did get married, I'd just phone my mother and have her come over for some coffee and diaper changing. There's, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, how would the world be different if people didn't get married? Roberta said, you can be sure of one thing. The boys would come chasing after us just the same as they do now. And lastly, we'll end with Kelvin, uh, age eight. How would the world be different if uh, people didn't get married? He said, there should there sure would be a lot of kids to explain, wouldn't there? <laughs> That's right. You know, kids, kids are very smart. And 
perceptive. And, and reading that, when I read that, I don't know what you thought, but I thought, what would, what would my boys say? <laughs> and obviously, we see the, in the kid's response, it says something about their parents, doesn't it? Because they don't come up with these answers and responses just on their own and in a vacuum. But kids and all of us are shaped by our parents and the people in our life. And so the question before us this morning is, what are we teaching the next generation? Uh, What are we going to entrust with them when we're gone? What are we teaching them about life, about God, about love, about it all? And we're in this series, Legacy, with the big idea that the story, we have been entrusted with a story, and we will leave a legacy after we're gone. We all will leave a legacy. It's a question of what kind of legacy we're going to leave behind. Well, there's a problem when we think about the next generation, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. I'm sure you've heard about it. That is that research is showing that the gospel is not being faithfully passed to the next generation. We think, we assume Uh, Many of us, that if we were raised Christian, our children will be Christian and they will go on, but research is showing that that's not necessarily the case. And just not to be a downer this morning, but wanting to point to a little bit of the research so we can be informed this morning as we consider what does it look like to, to minister the next generation. So thinking of the American generations, the silent generation born in 1928 to 45, the boomer generation born in the 40s up to the 60s, a generation X born in 1965 to, through 1980, the millennials born in 1981 through 1996, and generation Z born in 1997 through 2012. Here's some research about the generations. Uh, from the Pew Research Uh, They found how many people identify as Christians. Among the boomers, it was 75% identify as Christian. Uh, Generation X, 65%. And the millennials, also 65% identify. Generation Z, 59% identify as Christian. So obviously there's a a, a decline in the number of people who identify as Christians among the generations. Uh, Another uh, chart I want to point out is the rise of the nuns. These are people who are unaffiliated with any faith. And this is what a lot of researchers have pointed to as the most critical uh, information about the generations. There's an increase in people unaffiliated with any religion. Among the silent generation, it was 11%. Among the boomers, it's 17%. Among Generation X, it's 23%. And among the millennials, it's 35% are religiously unaffiliated. That means they may be atheist, agnostic. They don't, they don't identify with any one religion. And then Generation Z, there's debate as to where they are. But a, research, a recent research by Barna found that among Generation Z, there is double the number who identify as atheists compared to millennials. So Generation Z... Um, seems the trend is continuing. Uh, But also you may look and think, oh, well, you know, a lot, a high percentage of people still claim to be Christian. It seems like we're doing all right. But if you were to look at, Barnard did research on, if you were to look at a biblical worldview, the percentage of people that have a biblical worldview, and by biblical worldview, here's what they mean. Believing that there are absolute, absolute moral truth, 
The Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches, that Satan is considered to be a real being in force, not just symbolic. A biblical worldview is a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to do good or good works, that Jesus Christ alone, he lived a sinless life on earth, and faith in him alone brings salvation. And there's an all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. That is what they mean by a biblical worldview. They found that only 17% of Christians have a biblical worldview. Among boomers, among all boomers, uh, 10% of boomers have a biblical worldview. In Generation X, 7%. Among millennials, 6%. And among Generation Z, 4% have a biblical worldview, which is that the Bible is God's word, faith in Christ alone for salvation, and that there's an all-loving, all-knowing, powerful creator God. The baton seems to be dropped when it comes to passing the gospel on to the next generation. And, and in looking at this information, these statistics, you know, if I can just speak personally, this really grieves me. This really, really grieves me. And it's not just because I'm a Christian and I want Christians to win and for us to uh, have a stronger voting block and have more power in our society and culture and world. It grieves me because the gospel is the best news the world has ever encountered. And we live in an age of division and brokenness, and emotional, and personal, and social pain. And I believe the gospel is the good news of how God can bring transformation today. And so this is very important as we think about how to pass the gospel on to the next generation. Now there's a, a number of different approaches to this news, to the facts uh, some people just want to criticize the next generation. All oh, young people, millennials, or they just don't get it. <laughs> some people just want to criticize, and we all know how effective that is. <laughs> uh, there's nothing better than when someone just says you don't get it, and it's all your fault. Some people just want to criticize. Uh, another approach is to accommodate, to overly accommodate the beliefs and convictions of young people. And this is to potentially change our perspective of what the gospel is. And this also is ineffective when we lose and we forget the good news that we've been entrusted with. Uh, others in many churches resort to new methods. If we just have the right programs, if we can create a cooler church, a cooler church with hip pastors and Fog machines and lights and videos and technology, that, that will reach the next generation. But it's not just criticizing, it's not accommodating, it's not new methods. It's getting in touch with what the gospel is all about. And so this morning, I want to encourage us from our text how we can be faithful to pass on the gospel to the next generation, how we can be faithful like generations before us to pass the gospel on. What do we need to do? How can we be faithful? First is this. 
how to pass on the gospel to the next generation. We must have gospel mission clarity. We need to be clear about what the gospel is and what it's calling us to be in society. In our passage, in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And then it says something about God. It says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's something about God you must know. But then also there's something that it does. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Begins with the, ter- the Hebrew term Shema, which is here. And this, actually, this statement, the Shema, became one of the cornerstone prayers of the people of God. They would pray it every morning. They would wake up and pray this, recite this command of who God is and what He calls us to be. There was, they wanted to be centered on the nature of God and the calling that He brings on our life. And so what does it mean to have gospel mission clarity? I mean, it's tempting to just move on and assume we all agree here. And it's tempting to have a whole sermon about this. We talk about the nature of God every Sunday here at Scarlet City. I want to highlight something uh, important from this text. And it concerns the oneness of God. It says the Lord is one. What does this mean? It is, it is not referring to the internal unity of God. What it's referring to is the uniqueness of God among God's people. The Israelites, the Jews, were the only people in the entire world and region at the time that worshipped one God. They were monotheists. One God. Moses is reminding his people the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of God's love. And this is important for the next generation. We need them to know what is unique about God. What is unique about God's love, unique about God's character. Moses goes on in chapter 7, he says this, unpacking the uniqueness of God, his nature. The, The passage will be on the screen. Moses says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, Getting back to what Jordan was saying earlier about the holiness of God, Uh, God's people are set apart. Set apart. You are holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What makes God unique for God's people? few things. God chooses them. They didn't necessarily choose him. God chose them. You know, every other people at the time, they selected their gods. Moses is saying, no, God, you're not selecting God. He chose you. We see one of the uniquenesses of God is God's love. Other gods were ambivalent. To slash wanted to control people. And keep people in slavery. That's what other gods were viewed to do. Here Moses is reminding them of God's love and mercy and grace. It sees one of the uniquenesses of God is that God redeems them. It is God's power. God's work. 
God is gracious. Why does God save them? Why does he deliver them? <laughs> Moses is very clear. He says, it's not because you're strong. God didn't survey the peoples of the earth and say, who are the strongest? That is who I will save. He says, actually, you are the fewest in number. It wasn't because they were strong. It wasn't because they were morally superior. God didn't look at the peoples of the earth and say, Who's, who are the best? Who are the good people? I'll save them. No. Is out of God's sheer grace. The next generation need to know the goodness of God. They need to know what makes the gospel and the God of the gospel utterly unique. Also, they need to understand the calling that the gospel brings onto their life. God's people, when it says to love the Lord your God, there are certain ideas that Moses and God's people wanted everyone to know. What does it mean? How do we love God? And, and what we find is that we love God by loving others. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial, does not take bribe. Verse 18, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And here we see one of the cornerstones of the entire Bible, you cannot get away from it, is both the idea of the justification of God, that we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the justice that that calls us to extend to our world. Young people, the next generation, must know, must know, the uniqueness of who God is and the salvation offered through faith in Jesus Christ and the calling that that places on all of our lives to care for those in need. We pass on the gospel. We must be faithful to the gospel mission that God calls us on. But also, how do we pass the gospel on to the next generation? If you guys will permit me, I'm, we're going to Go through it quickly. <laughs> How do we pass the gospel in the next generation? We need gospel mission clarity. Also, we need to integrate the gospel into every area of our life. Verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You need to internalize. You need to integrate the faith into every part of your life. Uh, Jesus in the Gospels, when he's responded with, what does God require? Jesus points back to Deuteronomy 6, said you are to love God with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. And he also adds, and with all your mind, your whole being, whole being in whole devotion. Whole being in whole devotion to God. But of course, this is challenging, is it not? Because rather than our whole being in whole devotion, we're tempted to a multi-self and multitask. Multitasking is how we operate much of today. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle to just be present with the people right in front of me. I struggle to be present to just read a book. My mind starts to think of countless things. I struggle. I mean, you might be struggling right now. Here right now, you might be making the list of 
what you need from the grocery store. You might be texting someone in the room. So I'm going to be present with people right in front of us right now. Whole devotion. Uh, not only do we struggle and when it comes to just wholly devoted to a thing, but we struggle with just being whole personally. Personal wholeness. We can compartmentalize certain parts of our personality. And oftentimes in church, it fosters that way of relating to God, that way of relating to ourselves. We don't see ourselves as human. We just see the parts of who we are. And we bring various parts of us into different arenas. So we show up to church and there's our church self. And then we uh, go home and there's the home self. And then we go to work and there's the work self. And we're not integrated. And one of the ways that Scarlet City that we think of holiness is we think of holiness as wholeness. Bring our whole selves to God. Uh, one therapist and author, Chuck DeGroat, says, says this. Speaking of wholeness, he says, wholeheartedness. In his book, Wholeheartedness, he says, we need to remember that the antidote to exhaustion isn't rest. Listen to this. The antidote to exhaustion is not rest. It's wholeheartedness. A life of unity and union. A life undivided. Much has happened in your life and mine to cause dividedness. There is much in our churches and workplaces, in our politics and our family lives, which cause division. Sometimes it seems that division and fragmentation may have the last word. God doesn't want you to be divided. He wants you to be whole. To be whole. To bring your mind, your heart and soul, and your strength. He wants you to be integrated. He wants us to bring our minds into our spiritual journey. This, this causes us to ask, what do we believe? What do we think? Being honest about doubts and questions. God doesn't want you to just turn your mind off. Oh, it's church faith time, so we'll leave the mind at home. Bring your mind. He wants you to bring your heart and your soul. This causes us to ask, how do I feel? What motivates me? What are my desires and passions and fears? God wants you to bring that into how you relate to him and to your spiritual journey. God wants you to bring your might, your body. We're physical beings. To bring your might and strength has caused us to ask, how do I, what do I do? How am, how am I spending my time? How am I living? There's a temptation for us to not be integrated. Some of us are mind people. <laughs> and we look at people as brains on a stick. You know, if we just have the right information, if we just get, get it in here. And we may be prone to relate to our kids or young people that way. Just if they all have the right facts about God. Just pour it in, you know, like Kool-Aid in a jar. Pour their mind. But, they, but we need to know that it's not just about the data and the facts, but it's about our emotions, our heart and soul as well. Some of us are heart and soul people. <laughs> you might be thinking, preach it, pastor, heart and soul. Mm. <laughs> and we need to not forget our mind. It's not just about what might feel good in any moment, but we can be rooted in truths 
that are bigger than our feelings. God's calling us to bring our whole selves, our, our body, our mind, our heart and soul into our life. Whole self and whole devotion. How to pass the gospel on the next generation. We need a gospel integration, but also we need gospel-infused conversation. Verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. What Moses is saying here is not, okay, here are the four aspects to good teaching. It's when you're sitting down or if you're walking somewhere or when you're lying down or when you wake up. What he's saying is the gospel needs to permeate your conversation. All place, all the time. So when we think about what it means to diligently teach young people the gospel, what you need to not think of is what we're doing right now. (laughs) This is not preaching at our kids. This is a conversation. Conversation. What are the qualities that make up a good conversation? I want you to think about what are are the qualities of a good conversation? Probably it's not this. (laughs) If you meet someone for lunch and you're hanging out and they uh, stand up, and you're sitting down, and they, they, they talk at you the whole time, that, that probably is not a good conversation. Um, it's also not if someone refrains from sharing where they're at. That's not good conversation. If someone only asks you how you're doing but does not share anything in return, good conversation is a back and forth. It's listening and sharing. There's an authentic nature to good quality conversation. We need to have good quality spiritual conversations with our children and the next generation. And to do this, it requires asking, what are the concerns and questions that young people have? What are some of the concerns and questions that young people have? Not, how do I just talk to someone about something that interests me? What interests them? And the research shows a number of things. We can't get into all of it right now, but these are things we like to talk about a lot here at Scarlet City. One of the things that the research shows is the number one reason that people leave the faith Number one reason, I found this actually interesting. I, I, I wouldn't have guessed it. The number one reason was the inconsistency that people believe about the problem of evil and suffering. They cannot reconcile a good God with evil and suffering. This was in the research, and Barna's research was the number one reason people leave faith. And so what does this mean for our conversations? I think one of the things we can do is in teaching our children the problem of evil, that we grieve injustice. We're not ambivalent to evil. We, do not, we don't stick our heads in the sand and pretend that it's not there, but we are able to talk about injustice and why, why something is evil. That our children growing, grow up understanding why something is evil. Another question is, where can acceptance be found? Many people struggle with the idea of exclusivity, exclusive claims. Are we talking to our children about the good news of the gospel and God's grace? Another big question, a big, big question young people have is they think they need to choose between either truth and science or faith. And are we presenting that false dichotomy to our kids? Another question is a question of identity. Young people are wrestling with, who am I? Who am I? Are we teaching our young people that they are beloved, children of God? Are we passing on the gospel of the next generation through gospel-infused conversation? 
And lastly, how can we pass the gospel on to the next generation? We need gospel-shaped habits and practices. Moses outlines a few habits in the passage. You shall bind these commands as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's people literally did this. They put this scripture on little scrolls, and they would put it in things, and they would wear it on their forehead and on their hands. They would put it on the side of their door when you walked in as reminders. And so for our young people, what are some symbols and practices that we're doing in our home and in our congregations that take God's truth from our head to our hearts? Because that is where transformation happens. Not in just talking and listening, but in experience. If you're interviewing for a job and they said, you need more experience, what they're not saying is you need to go home and you need to read more. You need more experience reading and get another degree. That's not what they're, what they're saying is you need more experience of taking what you've learned and fleshing it out in life. What experiences are we creating for young people today that they can internalize God's truth today? So as we close, I just want to invite you, all of us, whether you have children or not, all of us are called to faithfully pass the gospel on to the next generation. We must know what the gospel is. We must internalize the gospel in our heart and life. We must uh, model the gospel to young people. We must teach them the gospel in conversation, and we must provide experiences where this truth can deepen in their lives. And so what are some ways you can be involved? First, and obviously if you're a parent, the role that you play in the faith of your child is not matched by anyone else. It is not the youth pastor or the pastor. It, as a mom and dad, the responsibility that you have to know the gospel, model the gospel, and teach the gospel to your children must be taken seriously. But also for all of us, we are a church family and we take that seriously. And so I want to invite you a few ways you can invest in the next generation. One is serving with Scarlet City kids. I mean, this is the future generation. The future generation. Right now, our town's there studying and learning and engaging in the gospel. Uh, also, a middle school ministry. We're starting up a middle school ministry at Scarlet City Church. And if you would like information on how you can be involved, we'd love to get you some information about that. A young life and young lives are great ministries investing in the next generation. A number of people here at Scarlet City are part of this ministry. And if you would like information on how you can be involved, we'd love to give that to you. And also, Safe Families. Safe Families in a ministry, is a ministry that partners with families that don't have much resources themselves. And when kids are in a hard spot, we bring them into our homes. We care for children, care for the parents. There's a number of great ways you can invest in the next generation. And I want to, you know, just like my pastor did to me when he handed me the baton and said, you're up one day, our kids, we are going to hand them the baton. What are we going to entrust? Are we going to entrust the gospel that we have modeled, believed, and made shape our church? Or are we going to entrust something else? Let's pray.
Father, we are thankful for the faithful men and women who have been faithful to pass on the gospel to the next generation. Lord, the work often feels daunting. And may we not be overwhelmed by just the the problems. May we see the opportunities, the opportunity to take the gospel and clarify it for the next generation that they may take the baton and be faithful to run their leg of the race also. And as we look and survey the beauty of your multi-generational work, we can't help but be in awe. Thousands of years ago, Moses pleaded with his people to know you and to make you known in the world. And here we stand today, thousands of miles away, thousands of years later, as a reflection of your faithfulness among generations. Lord, give us your spirit. Deepen your truth in our heart that we may live it out in our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.